I am excited to introduce our guest today, one of my favorite Bitcoin authors and formerly a software engineer. He is the author of the book, The Bullish Case for Bitcoin, which, as I've told you all at the beginning of the show, is now required reading. So everyone needs to read it by the end of this week if you have not already. Vijay Boyapati, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Q. It's great to be with you guys again. Great so, to have you. I saw I'd you rocking lo- out to that song. Sorry. <laughs> the, the song we were playing. I saw you off camera dancing. <laughs> Q, please continue. Everyone always does. Vijay, I want to just sort of start with, you know, we are in the midst of a very long Bitcoin winter. If you do not believe it is a bear market, I I have a doctor who will prescribe some medication for you. Shout out Dr. Jeff Ross. But Vijay, I guess my qu- first question to you is just, what what is it right now today that has you still bullish about Bitcoin and its potential for the future? So I agree with you. I think we're in a bear market. And I I think I called the bear market, let's see, I think I was a little bit early, but I think I called it somewhere in June or July. I thought the bear market was starting. I think I, it's probably correct to say it started a little bit later in 2021. So I, I agree with that part. And I think what we're seeing is a compounding of both Bitcoin's natural cycle, which you we've seen these bear markets before with the macroeconomic picture. That explains why this bear market feels as painful as it does. I don't really think this is, it doesn't to me feel that long. I've been observing coins since 2011. The longest bear market in my memory was the one from 2013 till the beginning of 2017. That I thought was the most painful and still the most painful Bitcoin bear market because it really did feel like wow, this thing might not come back. It, it just kind of felt like crickets, like during during the bear market, there was no interest in Bitcoin. Some of the big voices in the community had just kind of, they really rage quit. Like Mike Hearn was a very well-respected developer at the time and he fully rage quit. He wrote a piece in the New York Times, like this thing is dead. I don't want, I'm not interested in it, I'm out. And there really was very little interest anywhere you know people weren't talking about bitcoin it wasn't being written about that was a really really tough time for people who believed in bitcoin i think this is actually very different i think bitcoin is now fully established as a macro asset the price has dropped yeah okay it's down to twenty thousand. but if someone had told you three or four years ago bitcoin is going to crash to you know nineteen twenty thousand dollars you'd be like whoa that's amazing we've made it it This illustrates one of the aspects of money that people don't really understand, which is path dependence. That is, you can't value money based on its cash flow because gold and Bitcoin are monetary assets. They don't produce cash flow. Um, And and so they they get valued by this kind of market process of people trying to determine. It's a game theoretic process. People trying to determine, is this better money than all the other monies that are out there? Is it better than gold? Is it better than dollars? Is it better than silver? Is it better than Ethereum? All, all the competitors that are, that are out there. And, and that process kind of works in these cycles that we've seen where people get really enthusiastic and then you run out of steam and then you have a crash. So the, the, the thing about monetary assets, the point I'm trying to make about monetary assets is that they don't have cash flow. And so you have to, you have to, 
measure their worth as a monetary asset against other competitors and along the attributes that make for a good money. And what are those attributes? They are things like divisibility, portability, transmittability. How easy is it is it to transmit? And most importantly, scarcity. Uh, and along this one critical attribute that all monies need, Bitcoin is the best form of money that's ever existed. This hasn't changed. This fundamental aspect of what makes Bitcoin good, or I think the best money, hasn't changed. It's just the market goes through these cycles of people trying to understand what it is and people getting overexcited and then kind of losing hope. And each one of these cycles is defined by a group of people. In the first cycle, the group of people was very small. There were only people who could understand Bitcoin, cypherpunks, computer scientists, and maybe some hardcore libertarians. It was a very small circle of people. But each cycle, that circle gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and so we have gone through a cycle where we actually brought in a lot of retail investors. But there's, you know, many, many more retail investors. There's many more institutions. There's many more nation states out there. And a lot of them got a taste of Bitcoin. They may have given up and said, oh, you know, this thing has failed. But maybe they bought a little bit. Maybe they bought, say, 1% of their portfolio or maybe even $100. And they gave up on Bitcoin. But those people are primed come back in the next cycle. Now, I'll give you one example of this. Stan Stanley Druckenmiller is a very famous, famous macro investor, billionaire, very successful over a very long period of time investing in ma making macro bets. He owned Bitcoin during this last cycle. And very recently, I heard him say that he doesn't own any Bitcoin. Now, that sounds bad. Okay, he's given up on Bitcoin. But he has been mentally captured. He's always going to pay attention to the price of Bitcoin. And when Bitcoin starts slowly but surely, as it always does in every cycle, slowly but surely coming back, he will be paying attention. He'll be like, oh, it hasn't died. It's been stuck around 20K or whatever it is, wherever it finds its plateau. It's been stuck around that level for a long time. It hasn't gone away. And it looks like it's creeping up. Now it's, you know, 23, 24, 25, maybe 30K. People like him will come back because they've been exposed to Bitcoin. They've been mentally captured. They've had enough touch points where they've heard about it enough or they've invested a little bit and they're going to come back. And this is the same thing that happens every cycle. The same thing happened back in 2017 where a bunch of people got burnt and they bought Bitcoin at 19 or 20,000 and it dropped to 3,000. And they're like, oh, why did I do that? It was a terrible investment. But then they were paying attention in, in the current cycle, which is kind of finished. And they came back in because they noticed Bitcoin, they knew about it, they knew how to invest, they were primed to put more capital in. So each cycle, the people who are primed to come in is much bigger. And the, the number of people who are ready to come in, in in the next cycle, especially institutions and high net worth individuals, is gigantic. Some of the things that we saw, I think people got overly excited. They saw Michael Saylor coming in, they saw El Salvador, and they thought this cycle is the cycle when we're going to have every high net worth individual, every corporation, every nation state, they're all going to pile in. I actually think what you got was just a taste of what we'll see in the next cycle. And I was really surprised, and I, I've said, I said this on many podcasts, I was really surprised to see El Salvador come in 
I didn't think a nation state would do what El Salvador did for a few cycles into the future. And, and so what happened, I think, is what I expected, which is most nation states will stand back and not do anything. But now I think many more of them are going to be primed in the coming cycles to come in and do what El Salvador did. So I think there are many, many reasons to be bullish about Bitcoin. None of the fundamentals have changed. None of the uh, attributes that make Bitcoin superior to all its competitors, none of that has changed. The number of people who have been exposed to Bitcoin is much, much larger. What you have, if you've been around for a while or you listen to people who have been around for a while, is an incredible opportunity. The best time, if you're one of those people around in a bear market, is to, the best time to invest is right now. The best time to get exposure, to learn more about Bitcoin, to do something for Bitcoin, to go and build a business in the Bitcoin space is right now. The people who are around now, who are either building businesses, investing or learning about Bitcoin, they are the people who are going to be most successful in the coming cycle. What you don't want to be and what always disappoints me is the people I, friends and family I speak to, they only get interested right at the end of the cycle. And I get, it's the same every single cycle. I've been through four of them now, I think. People come to me at the end of the cycle and they're like, tell me about Bitcoin. How do I invest in Bitcoin? I'm like, I'm really glad you're interested in Bitcoin. But, you know, just be careful because Bitcoin is cyclical. It goes through cycles you know, learn about investing in Bitcoin, put a small percentage of portfolio in there. Because I usually think about it as they're not really ready. They're going to come back the cycle after and they're going to get a little bit burnt. I don't want them to get too burnt so they never come back. But if you are around now, if you're listening, if any of your you know listeners are thinking about this, if you're around now, there's a huge opportunity. You, you know, they don't come around that, that often. It's once every four years. And, and eventually these cycles are going to stop when Bitcoin gets to complete full adoption. And I think we're only maybe three or four cycles away from that. So I am really excited. I think this is the best time to be interested in Bitcoin. None of the fundamentals have changed. So get out there and learn about it. Get out there and invest. Get out there and build. Now is the time. I just want to really hammer this point home, but this is that moment, both when everyone should be taking the time to really learn as much, if not more than ever about Bitcoin, about a different component facet. And I really cannot emphasize enough how helpful VJ's book and essay were in helping me to better understand and appreciate just the, answering the question of what is money is a question that I don't think a lot of people spend enough time asking themselves. But I also don't think those who have, but for lack of a better word, like money managers don't really understand that concept or that question of what is money. I have long been asking this question to P and I've never liked his answer. So VJ, I asked this question to you. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> the promise of Bitcoin is not unlimited wealth. It is this freedom from the fiat money and systems that we have created. However, my fear is that if we have Michael Saylor and Stanley Drunken Miller and the Chamath Polyopatias of the world aping into Bitcoin, their 0.01% allocation is more than my entire net worth. And so... If we have too many of these high net worth individuals start to be the only people that are whole coiners, and then we have those who have already been left out of fiat, 
unable to afford a whole Bitcoin, do we not repeat or are we not at risk of repeating the cycles and systems that have failed us in the fiat system, in this future Bitcoin system? I think that's a fair concern for sure. I, I would say a lot of these billionaires are actually really late. They're not early. The, the, the people who have been interested in Bitcoin who are early are the kind of people that I'm hopeful for can change society as Bitcoin becomes money. People who believe in freedom and the, the importance of the rights of indi individuals. Like I found out about Bitcoin from fellow Ron Paul supporters who have a set of values that I really support. And, you know, I left my job at Google, very lucrative job at Google to go campaign for Ron Paul. And that didn't work out. And it was really sad, depressing period of time for a few years. I was like, this political process is completely broken. We, we're never going to get these ideas through. Then I discovered Bitcoin in 2011. I'm like, wow, there is a way, not through politics, but through technology that we can change the world and push these ideas forward. Sound money, hard money, the ability to keep the fruits of your labor without a central power confiscating the fruits of your labor, the importance of nation states not interfering or going to war with other nation states and how hard money will make that more difficult. These values, I think, will be transmitted because a lot of early Bitcoiners have those values. It is true that you'll have some wealthy individuals coming in, but I still think it's a, a fairly small proportion compared to just regular people. I, at least in my experience, I, I think Stanley Druckenmiller and Michael Saylor are exceptions. They're, they're not the rule. So, so, so far, I am hopeful. I, I think it's a valid concern, but I'm hopeful from what I've seen in the history of, of observing Bitcoin that a lot of people who have come in are plebs, you know, friends and family, people who are fellow travelers in terms of ideology. So, you know, the people who, it's interesting, the people who I think have very different ideologies in a way don't like Bitcoin. And so they are going to be, unfortunately for them, they're going to be last in line. And I th I'm thinking about people like Elizabeth Warren, who thinks Bitcoin is this gigantic scam that's going to destroy the environment. And she's completely mistaken. It's a it's a, a, a technology which actually is going to help the environment a lot. It's going to make energy grids much more efficient. It's going to provide a huge incentive for renewable energies in places where otherwise it wouldn't be possible to develop those renewables. But a person like her, a person like Paul Krugman, they're going to be way back in line to, to join. They're only going to join, they're only going to start using Bitcoin when they're forced to because no one else will transact with them and they'll go to the grocery store and they'll come with their dollars and the, the grocer will say, I don't take those anymore. I don't want those. I want Bitcoin. So I'm hopeful about that. And that's the trend I have seen. Um, but anything can happen. <clears throat> maybe Paul Krugman changes his mind and maybe a bunch of warmongering extreme communists decide Bitcoin is the greatest thing ever and they start investing in it. i hopeful that doesn't happen, but maybe it, maybe it will. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. As the world moves increasingly towards the mainstream adoption of Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage will make it possible to materialize your assets in real estate. Through the collateralization of mortgages with Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage will be launching lending solutions to allow investors to easily leverage their assets to purchase investment in owner-occupied properties. 
Moon Mortgage's crypto mortgage will be launching soon for home buyers in Texas, Florida, and Colorado, and will be open to investors in most states across the U.S. for investment properties. Welcome to the future of mortgages. Visit moonmortgage.io today to register your interest and learn more. Moon Mortgage Residential is registered with the NMLS under number 235334. Come celebrate Bitcoin winter in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from May 18th to the 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your tickets before prices go up. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. I want to address, you know, the politicization and polarization that Bitcoin has just sort of been thrust into. Bitcoin is apolitical. You touch on a little bit about how those who have, I think, a a more libertarian value set seem to have seen the value proposition of Bitcoin earlier and sooner. But we've seen, especially in this most recent cycle, it's not only libertarians that are involved in Bitcoin. However, the portrayal of Bitcoin in the mainstream media has almost turned into this, oh, it's a tool for the quote-unquote far-right wing, the anti-establishment. And if you are pro-establishment, you must therefore be anti-Bitcoin. I, I personally, like, I, I hate this rhetoric. And this isn't as someone who doesn't want to be considered right or, or anything. I don't want to be considered right, left, or center for that matter. I want to be considered a human being. Why does Bitcoin, why has Bitcoin been thrust into this political space and how do we almost change the narrative or conversation with the likes of Elizabeth Warren or just her supporters? Because her supporters are who I'm more concerned about winning over than I am about winning Elizabeth Warren over. Yeah, that's a great question. I think you're absolutely correct. Bitcoin as a tool, as a network, as a monetary good is completely neutral. Bitcoin does not care who uses it. It does not care if you are libertarian. It doesn't care if you're a hardcore fascist. It does not care. It doesn't care if you're criminal or if you're innocent. I think the reason it's become politicized is because there's this fundamental difference of opinion among certain people about what money is and who should control it. There are a bunch of economists who had very long time who had this theory that money did not emerge as a market-based process. And this is well before Bitcoin. They, they, they talked about money in terms of government created this thing and it provided it to society as a tool for people to use and to, to, to allow for commerce. It's, this, it's called the Chartalist School of Monetary Economics. And there's a different school, which is that m- money is something that's produced by the market. It emerges out of the market from the des- from the individual desires of participants in the market to have a tool to conduct trade with each other. And that that is how gold emerged as money. It wasn't because some government said, OK, we need this tool. Gold is going to be money. We're going to use gold. That's not how money came about. And this is the school of economics that I subscribe to, that money is a market-based phenomenon. It emerges because of incentives, not because of 
a fiat decree. It does not emerge because the government says we need it. It emerges because we each individually need it. I need Bitcoin because I want to keep my savings in something that can't be taken away from me and can't be debased. That is my individual need. I was not told by anyone, you have to use Bitcoin. I I used it because of my own, own desire. It, you know, in terms of the debate, I think it's a sort of grassroots thing. And I think you already see this and it's emerging in community, maybe a little later than it would emerge in a libertarian community. But amongst progressives and liberals, there is a community of people who see the value of Bitcoin. And you actually see a lot of writing and material being produced now. There's a book called The Progressive Case for Bitcoin, which I supported on Kickstarter. And if you're a liberal or progressive and you're skeptical of Bitcoin, I strongly urge you to read the material in that book. And and it, it will make the case to your values, the set of values that you have and what the way you want to see the world. You shouldn't just rely on people like Elizabeth Warren, who's really quite ignorant about how Bitcoin even works, the incentive structure, why anyone would want to own it, and how it helps the value system that she supports. I think you should look for alternative perspectives. And there are people who are very progressive who support Bitcoin and have very good reasons to support Bitcoin. So I think the way it's going to work is that it's going to be a grassroots movement that happens. And eventually someone like Elizabeth Warren will say, oh, I you know, I better start supporting it because my base of supporters support it. If I don't support it, I'm going to get kicked out of office. And this happens also on the economic sphere as well. Consider someone like Jamie Dimon, who really was very negative. He's the CEO of JP Morgan Chase, one of the biggest banks on earth. He was very negative on Bitcoin. Then all of a sudden, as if by magic, he started softening his tone and wow, JP Morgan start offering products. Why are they offering products in Bitcoin? It's because their clients were going to them and saying, I want exposure to Bitcoin. Where's the product? Give me the product. And they're a for-profit bank. They know that they have to serve the interests of their clients or their clients are going to go to Bank of America or Fidelity or Vanguard. They're going to, they've got so many options. This is the equivalent grassroots movement inside the banking sector you can be as negative negative as you want, but if your base of support wants Bitcoin, you will change your perspective. So one day, Elizabeth Warren will change her perspective. It may take a long time, and unfortunately, she's harming her supporters and, and the people who listen to her and take her seriously because she's telling them something which is false, and they are going to have to figure it out for themselves, and that's just putting them at the end of the line to figure out something that's hugely transformative is going to change the world. And it, and it benefits you to be a part of as quickly as you can figure it out, just like the internet, right? You, you don't want to be the guy in 2015 saying, what is this internet thing? Should I figure it out? You want to be the person in 2000 who figures out the internet and gets a sense of the opportunity and participates in it, builds something on it, starts a business around it. Same thing with Bitcoin. And I I, I do feel a little bit sorry. I, I live in a very, very liberal, progressive city. And I do feel sorry for some of my friends who have been sold this false set of goods by people like Elizabeth Warren who aren't curious about Bitcoin and will only figure it out down the line. As much as I try to convince them and 
you know, give them my book or sit down and patiently explain why these arguments are false. It's just going to be that that's going to be the case for some people. They're just going to have to figure it out later on when it becomes a necessity. One thing that I think is, is very sad and also amusing is that we continue to see this pattern where every time Bitcoin, the price of Bitcoin, you know, goes up significantly, this narrative or this argument comes up. It's like, oh, we've already missed the boat. It's unfair that people are who got in early get to got lucky. And it's always presented as like, you're lucky. It's not like, oh, you understood the situation better than some other people. You took appropriate risk and you are benefiting from that. It's always like, these motherfuckers got lucky. And then when the price plummets, as it has now, like generational buying opportunity, that argument just evaporates. And suddenly the people that were making that argument previously are like, see, I told you so. And then when it goes back up again, they'll be saying the same thing. That drives me Yeah, crazy. exactly. Exactly right, P. And I think people don't understand the risk reward trade-off. And I, I, I've sometimes during cycles, I've tweeted like on the day when Bitcoin crashed below 20,000, as it was, you know, all these huge liquidations related to three arrows capital and Voyager and all these companies that went under and they were dumping their Bitcoin. I said, this is, this is what real pain feels like. And if you're, if you're getting through this, if you're surviving, then you know, this is not luck. It's extreme pain. It's extreme fear. And it's the moment when everyone around the world is hearing Bitcoin is dead. This thing is never coming back. And if you have the conviction to hold through that, that that is why you deserve the returns. You've gone through that risk and that pain because you had enough conviction in the fact that this is fundamentally superior to its competitors even though everyone around you is telling you that that's false. So I, I, I agree. Anyone who's made it through a bear market, they, they deserve everything that's coming to them. Their increase in standard of living, their ability to change their lifestyle, whatever it is, that they, they deserve that. And it is, it is painful to hear, I agree with you, when, when those people are doing well, oh, you're lucky, you don't deserve this wealth. No, no, no. You, they put in the effort to understand this pretty complicated idea that is money and to understand why bitcoin in particular is superior money and they held through the pain of a bear market not many people are able to do that and and your listeners definitely the ones who are still around right now they are the kind of people i think who deserve the the returns that will come in the coming years yeah luck has nothing to do with it it's excruciating painful takes a lot of effort a lot of personal growth a lot of education a lot of conviction but all that goes out the window when, when people feel like they're hard done by. Yep. I, uh, I want to echo everything that Q said. If you are listening to this and you have not read VJ's book, The Bullish Case for Bitcoin, you should absolutely check it out as soon as possible. It's a fantastic read. I want to ask you about the your prognostications around CBDCs. There, there's no way one can answer this question you know, concretely, but I'm curious how you think we are likely to see CBDCs and the the attempts to force their rollout across the world go. I think where my own view is we're headed towards a social credit system style CBDC in the United States, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that if you have any. I think there's no surprise that the country that's pioneering CBDCs is China, a fully authoritarian 
kind of panopticon society where everything you do is always watched. And they literally have cameras everywhere with AI built in that can track faces. They know where each person is at all times. And they want to put their, their fingers into people's financial lives as well. So the way you do that is with CBDCs. If you have a digital token where you can associate it with a person through KYC and you know where they are, you can know what everyone is doing down to the, you know, the minutest transactions. And that's a really, really scary development. I think, I think there'll be a push and a motivation in Western societies, liberal democracies like the US and the UK and Australia and Canada to follow that path because people who are in the bureaucracy will see this as a, an advantage that China has, an economic advantage. And they'll say, well, we need to do this too. They've, de they've developed a digital currency and they're ahead of us. The thing that makes me, you know, a little bit hopeful is, is that there's still a remnant in these countries which have a strong belief in freedom. And if you push policies which are really invasive like this, there's a lot of pushback. And and I think I, I'm very hopeful from what I, I saw during, you know, COVID and, and this push for like forced vaccinations Whatever you think about the, the vaccine and its efficacy, the idea that someone should be forced to do something, I think is really quite awful. Instead of using persuasion, like here's, here's the reasons why you might want to take it. It's like, no, we're going to force you. And if you don't do it, we're going to kick your kids out of school. There was a lot of pushback. There's a very significant remnant in places like the US and in Canada that push back on this stuff. And, and I think CBDCs will be something that you will get a lot of pushback on and it will be much harder to get it through in a, in a country like the US than it than it is in, in China where they, they have a basically a dictatorship and a President Xi can do whatever he wants. If he wants to push through CBDCs, he can just like sign a piece of paper and say, yep, we're going to have CBDCs. I think the dynamic is going to be very different in Western democracies. And, and I think... <clears throat> it's still an open question. It could happen, but I think we're going to see much more pushback than you would expect. And it's not obvious to me that they're going to be adopted by central banks. I muted. I pulled a P, damn it. I want to, Vijay, get your thoughts though on, you know, the idea that there are Western democracies exploring this and, it's not even being hidden. The idea and concept of a CBDC feels and reads as hyper authoritative. Um, do you feel as though, you know, countries like Canada, the US, Australia, anywhere in the EU, even the, the fact that they are exploring this should be assigned to citizens that those days of you live in a free democracy have truly come to an end? Or am I just being a little too doomsday-y? I think you should be concerned. I think it is maybe a little bit too doomsday or doomsaying to to think it's inevitable. I mean, there's through the history of the United States, a lot of very authoritarian ideas have been put forth. I mean, the Alien and Sedition Act was passed in like, what was it 1796, I think? Or, or, or no, sorry, maybe it was a little after that. But I mean, very early in the US's history, and that's a very authoritarian. What did it specify exactly? It, it said that if you criticize the policies of the US government or 
promoted the values of the French government, then you could be put in jail if you're a newspaper that did this. And this was when there was this huge debate between Jefferson and Adams about whether they should support the British or whether they should support the French. And people thought it was going to end up in a civil war. They really believed that the US was going to fall apart before 1800. So I'm giving this as an example to say that there have been very draconian authoritarian type laws. That was actually even passed. (laughs) It, it It was gutted later on after Jefferson became president. And he said, this is not what we are. These aren't our values. But the U.S. has had a long history of this. I mean, go to the Civil War. There are a lot of very draconian policies as well. Lincoln suspended habeas corpus, which is one of the most fundamental values of a free society. So my point is we need to fight this. That's how we fix this. We need to push back. We need to explain why this is not compatible with a free nation. And, and I think we can do that. And I, I think we need people like you guys to explain it to your, to your listeners and, and also people to reach out to their senators or their congressmen and say, I really don't like this. Please don't do this. They pay attention to stuff like that. And then it filters into Congress. And you have people like Senator Lummis who will be talking about this and saying this is not compatible with a free society. And I think she's already talked about this. So I'm I'm hopeful that we can arrest the progress of something like this in our country because we have, it's not, we don't get top-down dictates. It does seem like it sometimes, but we can push back and pushing back actually does have some effect. All right, I've got a totally unrelated question for you. Are you ready? Last time you... Um, Vijay, I just want, before P asks this, I apologize in advance that this is not a reflection of me or Bitcoin Magazine. It's so weird because you just texted me and you were like, bro, ask him the question. Ask him the question. (laughs) I'm worried now. No, none of that is true. It's a totally reasonable question. (laughs) Or is it? Now, the question is, (laughs) I I built it up so much now, everybody, everyone is going to be disappointed. Years from now, children are going to be like, this is such a terrible buildup. The question is, last time you were on the show, you told us a great story about the first Bitcoin, I think that you mined on your laptop. You talked about like, you know, you first got excited about Bitcoin and then you had some on your laptop, you left the laptop with a significant other, and then later it was worth like, you know, tens of thousands of dollars and you reach back out mm-hmm. and this person was like, oh, that's just gone. That laptop got stolen. It's mm-hmm. gone. Tell us another, like, what's the craziest Bitcoin story that you have around losing your keys or just anything? Craziest Bitcoin story. When Guy Swan was on, he yeah. told us about almost burning his uh, his trailer down. I'm not sure exactly how it was related to Bitcoin, but I'm going to pretend that it was. Tell us a story like that. I mean, I've heard so many stories. Some of them you guys have probably heard about that I've read about. That my it was five bitcoins. Those are the first five bitcoins I got. And what friend I won a bet with a friend, and the bet was for a silver coin, and they gave me five bitcoins instead. But you're right, I did give that. Um, laptop which they were on to an ex-girlfriend and then she lost it and (laughs) they're worth what what about a hundred thousand dollars right now i've heard so many stories of people almost losing their keys and and just the 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 cold sweat that you get through and i like to say you haven't lived until you felt that fear of forgetting like the password to your hardware wallet and you don't know whether you it should be an O or a zero or you there's an extra character. Like the fear that comes from that, I've certainly felt that fear. That's that's what it means to be alive, that moment where you're like, oh no, <laughs> I don't have any I don't have any Bitcoin anymore. 
Uh, yeah, I, I love that. It's like you thought you were you were alive and you'd experience the intensity of of risk throughout your life, and then you make your first significant Bitcoin transaction, and everything changes. I mean, that's the moment when you realize that Bitcoin is different, right? It's different to a car, for instance, when you have the keys to your car. Imagine if you had the keys to your car and you lost them and then the car vanished instantly and you went outside and there's no car I love that. <laughs> and, and you could never get it back. That That's the feeling. You just spent like $50,000 in a car, but you lost the keys somewhere. You don't know where. Maybe the it grocery store, to the exist. car's not there. Yeah. So, that you know, I, I did have, uh, there was someone I knew <clears throat> who had made, I think about 5,000 Bitcoins mining in 2010 and he panicked in the Mt. Gox crash when it dropped to $2 from about $30 and he sold half his Bitcoin. And so he, he was down to something like 2000 Bitcoin and it was the <clears throat> 2013 cycle and, and Bitcoin was going up to a thousand and he was really excited that, you know, maybe he could buy a house or something like that. He didn't really have anything. And then he made a bunch of other mistakes. He was facilitating buys and sells between drug dealers and people who wanted to get Bitcoin. He, yeah, time-honored tradition. And he, he ended up losing all his Bitcoin, just dicking around. Like he could have just held his Bitcoin. And I've heard plenty of stories like that over the years where people have tried to be more intelligent than they needed the hardest thing is the simplest thing just own it and don't do anything else just own it yeah and you of course i'm sure you guys have heard the stories of people throwing away their hard disks and they end up in the, the trash heap and there's a story from england of the guy who has like six thousand bitcoins in the county dump it's, that's what they call it in the uk and australia the dump and he's gone to the city council and said I will give you a percent of the value of those Bitcoins. And, and they're still refusing. They don't want him to dig up the dump. And he has this huge operation that he's he's hired a PR team and lawyers and like experts in just filtering through trash. You know, that just sounds in, insane that you've filtered through like, I don't know, eight years of trash that's been built up to find a single hard disk that has keys. And who knows if the hard disk works or not. <laughs> So there are so many fun stories, crazy stories out there, and I've heard them all because I've been 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 around for a long time, paying attention to Bitcoin, and some of them are fun to hear. Like I think mine is kind of fun because you know I lost those five Bitcoins, but it introduced me to Bitcoin, and, and so I, I don't feel bad. I that's a that those five Bitcoins are a donation to everyone else. So essentially, Thank you for your sacrifice. The, yeah, I reduce the supply. It's not twenty one million. It's twenty one million minus five. I was there. I was listening to the previous episode you guys did, you know, just before this one. And the person I was hanging out with was like, yeah, but I mean, that's what she would say, even if she'd stole it. And I was like, oh no, keep listening. Cause then you're like, that's the beauty of Bitcoin. It's all on the blockchain. So like you're able to go and see and be like, that five Bitcoin. Yeah, exactly. Right. I, checked. I did, you know, trust, but verify. I verified, I went to the blockchain and those have, Bitcoins have not moved since they were sent to me in 2011. So they've been sitting there dead for over a decade and they will remain there for the next decade. All right. So let's go in, a, in another direction. We've been talking a lot lately about how we can bring Bitcoin to 
as many people as possible as rapidly as possible. And, you know, talking about things like, you know, federated Chamian mints and the work that Obinwasu is doing. We talked we talked yesterday about roll-ups on Bitcoin, the potential for those. I'm curious, and those are from a technical perspective, but I'm curious what you think, either from a technical or from a cultural or financial, what the largest hurdle to Bitcoin's global adoption is right now. I think easy access is probably the big one. People being able to have an on-ramp where they can take their savings and transfer those into Bitcoin. That's always the, the biggest one. I think time is another one. I, I like to say that information moves at the speed of light in our world, but understanding does not. Understanding takes time. And I think these cycles are a function of people's growing understanding of Bitcoin uh, ac across the world. Um, in terms of ideas for increasing the speed of adoption, I had an idea for a product that no one's done, and I've mentioned it a few times. I'll tell you guys as well, and you can tell me if it's a stupid idea or not. But one of the things that I got me about Bitcoin, I was a, I'm an all-time gold bug. And when I first understood Bitcoin, I'm like, wow, this is just like gold except with teleportation built in. This is amazing. I can like teleport gold to the other side of the world. That's what Bitcoin is. You can teleport value to the other side of the world. And I thought, well, couldn't we use that? Couldn't we do airdrops of Bitcoin? And I've had this idea for a long time and I wish someone would build it, build an app where I could take some Bitcoin, let's say a million sats, and I could airdrop them on a country like Bangladesh, a place where there isn't much Bitcoin adoption and divide those million sats into blocks of 10,000. So little airdrops, imagine airdropping food across the country. And all you need to pick up those sats is an app which geolocates you and says, yeah, I'm, at, I'm in Bangladesh and oh, there's an airdrop here. I, I can collect that. I think that would be so cool just as a tool for charitable giving as well to say, I have a number of Bitcoins that I want to drop on a location on earth and anyone who has the app can pick them up and now they have sats. And not only do they have sats, but it creates a connection between me and that person, like a, a messenger connection. And they can message me and say, hey, thanks. You know, I use that to buy some milk. I don't have much money and I use that to buy some rice or milk or bread or whatever it is. I think that would be so cool. And I really wish someone would build this. <laughs> I mean, it seems like it'd be super straightforward. I mean, it would be, you know. Attack vectors, people could spoof their addresses, but I mean, you could do it right now with like yes. QR codes or something like that. But then of course- Exactly you know, right. The so there costs. are there, there's some technical issues. You're absolutely right, Pete. But it's an interesting problem. There are ways with at least iPhones that you can sort of validate that the geolocation is a oh, valid Oh, based one. on cell towers, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there, there are ways and QR codes is another way. You could do something like proof of location. That's something else that could be built, a technology- You're saying we need another blockchain. <laughs> I'm not going to say that. I think, but I think that there is value in being able to prove that you are at a place. If you want to say, if you want to give proof, hey, I'm in Seattle. Here is a QR code that proves I'm in Seattle that literally can you cannot authenticate. It would probably be more centralized. Obviously, I'm not saying you need tokens or anything. But let's say Elon Musk created this service where he has satellites that could provide a proof that someone says they're in a location that they are actually in that location that anyone around the world can verify that that person is in that location that would be really powerful because then this idea would 
definitely be possible. And, and I just think it would be super cool that I could drop a million sats on a country and then suddenly get connected to a thousand people in that country. You could all message me and we could talk about Bitcoin. That would be friggin' amazing. So I really, if anyone's, I want, I really want, wish I had the time to build this, but I have four kids at home and they take a lot of time. I would love to build this product. Um, but if anyone else is out there listening, go ahead and build it because I think it would be really valuable and a way to distribute Bitcoin. It would be like a more advanced version of faucets. I don't know if you guys remember faucets, but in the early days of Bitcoin, there were websites you could go to and they would say, just give me an address and you'll get five Bitcoins. It's absolutely insane how many Bitcoins these faucets provided. And it was a way to increase adoption. Like anyone could go and get Bitcoin just from a faucet. And Gavin Andreessen was someone who built one of these. I think it's the equivalent of a faucet, except it, it, it allows you to airdrop on people around the world. I'd also just love, Vijay, we, we talked a little bit about the conversations out of the political space, but are there any types of legislation that either excite or worry you coming out of, we'll start here in America before we broaden up to the rest of the world? I think one thing that worries me a little bit, and this has actually gone quite far, is legislation that's trying to apply rules that, that, that the banking system has to abide by onto Bitcoin. And these are really old antiquated rules from the 1920s and 1930s. And one of them is the travel rule. And it, it does worry me that this is being pushed on businesses in the space. The travel rule is a rule an exchange has to know the ultimate recipient of when someone withdraws Bitcoin. And, and you have to be able to prove, you have to KYC the destination, which is really terrible. That, that puts a huge burden on exchanges and also massively reduces privacy as well. Like imagine you bought some Bitcoin and you wanted to send it to a friend, you'd, ha you'd have to prove that that address was owned by that friend and they would have to provide their passport and whatever. That, that's something that worries me. I think the industry has tried to push back on this a little bit, but those kind of things where you get more invasion of people's privacy, though, that, that, that does worry me a lot. And what's happened is the noose is tightening a little bit on society in terms of privacy. And I'll give you an example of this. There's an exception when you travel overseas or when you do a bank transaction that if it's less than $10,000, you don't need to report that you don't need to report it. You don't need to, if you go fly to another country, you don't need to say anything if you're carrying $10,000. This number, $10,000 has been around since the 70s. Now I'll tell you something, $10,000 is worth a lot less than it was in 1970. It's the equivalent of say $1,500 today, that value. And eventually as the value of money decreases, $10,000 is not gonna be worth that much. And it means that many, many more financial transactions are being reported to a central database that's controlled by the government. I worry about things like that where because no one's paying attention and no one's doing anything and they're not indexing this number to inflation, it's a noose that gets tighter and tighter every year and that we lose our privacy because of that. I think that's something that people need to pay attention to and push back on. And I, I, it worries me because no one talks about it. No one says, 
hey, this limit, this $10,000 limit has not been changed in 40 years and $10,000 is much, much worth much less today than it was back then. I got to say, I was reading some comments and I did not like what the commenters were saying. VJ, I wanted to also spend some time maybe just discussing um, like what is the biggest, most obnoxious piece of FUD that like garners a physical eye roll reaction from you? I don't mean just like a, like a, it makes you sick when you hear this piece of FUD said, what is it? And what do you say to negate it? That's a good one. I think the most dangerous piece of FUD is the ESG stuff, but that doesn't make my eye roll because I think you know, if you want to steal, man, I think the people who are worried about the ESG stuff are coming from a good place. Maybe their their thinking is muddled, but they want a better world for their children in the future. They don't want the environment harmed, and but that so that doesn't give me an eye roll. I think it's like something like why would I buy Bitcoin when I can get XRP, which is only a few cents? <laughs> what? <laughs> That's like the dumbest argument that exists out there. It's like it's, it's like the stock market. If a company splits its stock <laughs> and exactly. Apple splits its stock, it's a hundred dollars and now it's fifty dollars. It's not Apple is not cheaper. It's not cheaper. It what the valuation of the company is based on the market capitalization, the total market capitalization. And the same thing is true for Bitcoin. It's not the price of the individual unit that matters. And of course you can price in sats if you really want to make you feel like it's cheaper. What matters is the total market capitalization of Bitcoin. And that capitalization is bigger because the market believes it has greater value for the things that the, the purposes that money is supposed to serve in society, store of value, medium of exchange, unit of account. Bitcoin has more potential to do those things than anything else in the space. So you're not getting a bargain by buying Litecoin or XRP. And it just, it's almost depressing when I hear those arguments because they're so dumb. <laughs> but I do cover it in my book. I do cover that as a misconception because it comes up a lot. And it's definitely one that makes my eyes roll. And anytime I, I hear about Bitcoin cash, oh my goodness, my eyes roll even harder. So you're saying no, the don't thing. shit you can't. You can't buy Bitcoin with coffee, or you can't buy a coffee with Bitcoin the other way around. And so that's why you need a shit coin. That's that's right. that's what was explained to me. Right, right. Yeah, that's another one that makes my eyes roll is the whole coffee argument. Bitcoin is not oh, suitable for buying coffee. And in a way, that's actually correct. It's not. It's a settlement system. It's this hugely huge innovation to global settlement. And if you want to buy coffees, that's going to be built at higher layers of the system. That's why we have the Lightning Network. Exactly, you can, yeah. Gonna, yeah, you can. It's just not going to be done at the base layer. It doesn't make sense to buy coffee on the blockchain. That I agree with, yes. But you can if you want Correct. to. But even more is, yeah, you can use the Lightning Network. If you want network. to, but yeah, use the Lightning Network. If you can, if you want to you pay a fee, which is a very large fraction of the cost of the coffee the base level blockchain is not meant for that it's it's fixed in size for a very good reason and we had this debate in the block size wars so it, it's not meant for that it, it's like using the federal reserve bank settlement system the fed wire system to buy coffee no one does that <laughs> no one does that people 
people use their credit cards, which is a higher layer in the financial stack. And the same thing is true of Bitcoin as well. I mean, there are so many use cases coming out more and more, I think, as the days pass of both examples of people literally buying a cup of coffee with Bitcoin and just ways to use Bitcoin more as a medium of exchange. I'm just curious your thoughts on whether you feel like Bitcoin as a money has reached the point where it has fulfilled its obligation as a store of value and is ready to take on the task of being a true medium of exchange, or if it still needs some more time to really establish and entrench itself as a store of value. I don't think it has. I think it still has a long way to go. I, I, I think it's, a, I call it an emerging store of value. I don't think it's an established store of value at all. And I think it will only become an established store of value if it's around for decades and people just accept Bitcoin's not going away. I think that transition will really happen around 20 years into Bitcoin's existence. At least I think that because of what I saw with the internet I think in the first decade of the internet's existence, a lot of people were like, what is this thing? Why is it useful? You know, in the early 2000s, a decade ahead, 2010, I think it was pretty obvious that the internet was a permanent feature of the world. I think the same thing will be true of Bitcoin. Give it another decade and people will believe it's a permanent institution of the world. And I think it'll be fully entrenched when it, when it gets to the size of gold, when it has about the same capitalization of gold, which is I think I haven't, I haven't checked, I haven't done my math recently, but I think that's about 50 X from here. So when, when, what would that be? When, when Bitcoin gets to a price, maybe it's 20 X or 25 X, maybe when Bitcoin gets to around 500,000, then, then I'll, I'll, I'll think, think of it as a pretty well-established store of value with widespread ownership across the world. And it will be transitioning to becoming suitable as, as a medium of exchange because a lot of the opportunity cost will have been taken out. One of the reasons it's, people don't want to spend Bitcoin is the opportunity cost because they've gone through the experience of buying something with Bitcoin and then it goes up 10x and they feel regret and then they don't want to spend their Bitcoin anymore. I mean, I did this in 2014. I bought a Bitcoin ATM for three Bitcoin. It was about $1,000 and I never used the ATM. It didn't work. It's basically a doorstop in my house now. And after that, after that next run up in Bitcoin, I was like, why did I spend those three Bitcoin? Why didn't I just buy it with dollars? You know, I, I gave away a lot of that Bitcoin now costs about $60,000 and it's going to go up more and more in the future. Eventually Bitcoin will plateau because everyone owns some. And that's when I think it'll become suitable as a medium of exchange because that opportunity cost will be largely gone. This is not financial advice, it's just what I do. But firstly, I give so much attitude when someone's like, oh, we only accept Bitcoin. Like, no, you need to take my dirty fiat because I don't want dirty fiat. And then I will inevitably cave, spend some Bitcoin, and then immediately turn around and buy more of said Bitcoin. I actually, let me rephrase that. I go buy Bitcoin first and then immediately spend it. There's no tax obligation there in case any IRS agents are listening. I wanna, I wanna throw some quick math. So we are 30x away from the market cap of Bitcoin being equivalent to the current market cap of gold, which would give a per Bitcoin price of roughly $600,000. I'm, again, just, we're, we're spitballing here, speculating a little bit, but BJ, when, when the inevitable happens and Bitcoin starts to eat at some of the value in gold, 
do you envision gold like retaining some of its value at all or will it really crater to being next to or nearly worthless well gold has two components of its value one is its monetary demand and that's people just holding gold bars or gold coins in reserve in their vaults uh, in their safes or you know central banks do this as well and a lot of high net worth individuals around the, the world do this and then there's the industrial and jewelry demand so even if bitcoin outcompetes gold on the monetary side there will still be residual demand for industrial uses and for jewelry and i could see gold bitcoin getting to the same scale as gold i could see gold losing say 50 to 80 percent of its value I don't think gold is going to go away completely. I also don't think gold will lose all of its monetary value because I think some people will always want to own some gold just because gold is, it's not digital and it's gold was never going, going away. Like in case of like apocalypse or Mad Max type scenarios, you may not be able to use Bitcoin. Like if the internet goes down, if there's something which destroys the world to a point where we're, you know, living very primitive life, gold will still be there. So I think gold is still going to maintain some value, but Bitcoin's monetization is definitely going to take some of that. And you already saw that in this cycle, there are a lot of high net worth individuals who had some allocation of gold that switched that allocation to Bitcoin. And that is demand at the margin being pulled away from gold and going into Bitcoin. So it, it's not, there's not a precise answer, but definitely some of gold's value will drain into Bitcoin. Where are the other areas that you are paying closer attention to that Bitcoin will absorb value? I will throw out three examples that I myself am tracking the real estate market as a whole, the bond markets, sovereign bond markets in general, as well as equity markets. Are there any other places where you think Bitcoin can and will absorb value from? I would have said all three of those. So I completely agree. Maybe fine art is another one. There's kind of a store of value premium in fine art where people will take some of their wealth and and I'll put it in there. It's not quite the same because with the asset classes you mentioned, there's a store of value premium and real estate's an example of this, which is people aren't just using the asset for its use. Like a good example of this is in Vancouver in Canada, where you have a lot of people from China who put their savings into houses in Vancouver, not because they're living in those houses, but they wanted to have some savings outside of the country. And so the real estate market has a store of value premium in Vancouver, and that could certainly be drained. Fine art has some store of value premium, but it also has status premium. And that's something that probably won't go away because in all human societies, we, we have markers of status, things that we own that kind of show off that we are important or you know special. And, and I don't think status premium is ever going to go away. But the big ones are the ones that you mentioned, government bonds, real estate, gold, equities as well. I think all of those could get hit. I think real estate is the big one. It, it, it certainly had a long history of people thinking it only goes up in value. And so it became a kind of store of value. I think that could change in the future as interest rates go up and stay at a higher level. People may, might start thinking, well, real estate isn't such a good investment. What is something? And it's not a good store of value for a number of reasons. Like it, you need to 
put money into maintaining a house. So it costs money. It takes time. It's not fungible. It's hard to sell. It's not liquid. <laughs> There's so many reasons why it's an inferior store of value to, to Bitcoin. You know, when you compare stores of value like gold, some of them could hold their own against Bitcoin a little bit, but real estate really can't, as a store of value, hold its own against Bitcoin. It's inferior across almost every aspect as a store of value. So I do expect real estate to lose some of that over, over the next decade. I have my own theories and I'm more than happy to discuss because I always love the idea of how do we make real estate for... P is... Actually, VJ, because you didn't know this, so P is older than you and I and Chris combined. Ah, this old chestnut. So it's true, I'm a vampire. True. I'm, pretty, I'm pretty old. No, no, no. Pretty no, no, no. So, so P... <laughs> This is, I'm completely this is so serious. played out. You say the it's conceit out. is that I'm a Highlander. Look, did I kill Duncan McLeod in a fair duel? Yes. Did I absorb his magical powers? One hundred percent. Am I the oldest Bitcoiner <laughs> on the planet? Definitely. P has been frozen and unfrozen enough times at this point to where he has seen so many different iterations of the universe. He actually, the first house he ever bought was for less than ten thousand dollars, and it was a five-bedroom home. That's how old this house is. You used to be able to buy an entire house in the Sears catalog for like, you know, 500 bucks or something. Like a revolver used to cost salary, like six right? bucks. Yeah, oh, exactly. I, wish I, was, I, wish, I wish I lived back then. I know. I know. <laughs> it's crazy though when I think of like, you know, everybody used to have this idea of like, or at least I certainly did. Like, oh man, I wish I could like, you know, turn over a mattress somewhere and discover like a pile of cash or like, you know, break open a wall and there'd be like a bond certificate. And of course the problem is that like, that fantasy is like no longer viable. It hasn't been for for several decades, but it's like now if you found somebody's like mattress with cash stuffed in it, you'd be like, oh, it's like a thousand dollars. Like nice. Whereas like for them back then, that was like life changing money. You know, you could buy a Which house. Yeah, you could yeah, buy a house for a thousand dollars. Yeah, there was a yeah. there was a point in time where a thousand dollars bought you a legitimate like not just like the joke on Twitter I keep seeing or all the outhouses at different national parks is like oh I just bought this property for like seven hundred thousand dollars with eight percent yeah. interest. We got to remember that a thousand thousand dollars used to be fifty twenty dollar notes, and each of those twenty dollar notes was a gold coin. That is that was fifty gold coins. That's a that is actually a lot of value right there. So I can yeah. Yeah, I can see why that you could buy a house for that. What is it? A gold coin used to supposed to be able to get you a a good horse or an acre of land mm -hmm. or a cow? Yeah, I think one cow. Damn, how far we have fallen. Every day we <laughs> fall farther from God's grace. So I have my own theory that that value we can't suck it out. We Bitcoin cannot suck it out of real like estate. Snake venom? Mm, sure. Sure. I guess not. Snake venom goes into you though, unless you're going to suck the venom out of the bite that I just got. In which case here we, we have fun, VJ. I apologize for our, for our inappropriate banter. I, I we, we have a homelessness crisis in this country right now. We have more people homeless than ever before. We also have the highest number of homes and properties that are uninhabited. And unfortunately, the Airbnb properties kind of default fall into that category. I unfortunately don't feel like that is going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back. And we kind of need technology and deflation to enter the housing market. And until that happens, we're not going to see the value, the store of value that's been stored in housing to get 
moved into Bitcoin. I'd love your thoughts if this sort of hypothesis is in line with what you would think or how you envision the store of value and the value that's been stored in, in real estate would get transferred to Bitcoin. Yeah, there are, so there are a few issues in there. One is I agree that, and I do think technology is being applied to the housing market. You can now 3D print a house and that's going to dramatically reduce the cost of producing a house. But there are other problems. One of them is regulation, which just in certain parts of the country make it so that you're not allowed to build a house. You're not allowed to build up. San Francisco is an example of this. There are so many regulations in the Bay Area that reduce density and make it more expensive to live in, in that part of the country. The other problem is when you talk about the homeless problem, a big problem is bad governance. We have horrendously bad governance in some of America's great cities. Um, you go to San Francisco, go to Detroit, go to Baltimore, go to DC, go to LA. These go to the downtown of these cities. They look like third world countries. And it's, it's really awful. I mean, I, I remember going to Calcutta when I was a kid, which is, you know, one of the poorest places on earth and conditions are just awful. Go to San Francisco today. It looks like that. We, we have very obvious signs of decivilization in some of the most important American cities. And, and this to me is a sign of decay. It's a sign of bad governance. These cities are being run in, in the worst possible way. And it, it's, it's not a problem that defies solution. There are solutions to this. And, and part of it is incentive structures. It's not just that there aren't enough houses, it's that there are huge drug problems in these cities. And the way they're handling them and the way that they're handling, you know, just keeping businesses safe is so bad. There are businesses that are just running away from the core of these cities because they don't feel like mom and pop businesses that are they're running in a downtown of, say, San Francisco have people come in who are addled on drugs and stealing all of their stuff and no one does anything about it. That's third world conditions. And that exists in US cities. And we just need governments to do the basic things that governments are supposed to do. If you're going to have a government, it should do very basic things, which is protect people's property rights. If someone's running a business and someone else steals from it, that other person should face some consequence for that. And it really does make me sad that you, you see the decay, the obvious signs. Some people may not know, know this because they, they don't see the decay because they've never been to another country and they've never seen the opposite of a very well-run city that has good governance. I mean, go, go to a place like, or for instance, or Monaco, these kind of small city-states where things are run very, very efficiently and people are safe. Uh, People don't feel safe anymore to raise their children in these cities. And that's just a huge tragedy. This is kind of separate to Bitcoin, but it's something that I'm very passionate about and, and upset about to see America as a nation fall into decline when other nations are sort of coming up and, and realizing what good governance is and how they can run cities more efficiently and provide services for people. Yeah, we, we really, really need to address this problem or, or people are not going to want to live in cities anymore. They're not going to want to live in places like San Francisco or Seattle or, or Detroit. So yeah, it, it's an issue that I, I, I really care about a lot. 
I'd love like if you if you would entertain this because we joke when we say this meme, but I think there is truth in it. The idea that Bitcoin fixes everything, and I'd love just a conversation around how Bitcoin could maybe shift our relationship with property and safety, and how how could Bitcoin solve the issues that we see currently with property and safety. I think one of the things that makes Bitcoin so powerful is that you get a property right without requiring this outside apparatus of co coercion, which most people generally call the government or the state. You need a government to maintain property rights because if, if someone steals from you, then how do you get that thing back? So you have this system of coercion that gets people their property back if that, that happens, but you don't need that with Bitcoin. And I, one of the cases that I think would have been so great if Bitcoin was around, I think about the 1940s and World War II, and in particular, I think about the great Austrian economist Ludwig von Mises, who fled, he was living in Switzerland, and he fled across Europe just ahead of the clutches of the Nazis and came to the US. And he was living a pretty, you know, comfortable upper middle class life when he was in Switzerland. He was a well-regarded professor of economics and he had savings and he had a nice house and he got to the US and he, had, he was penniless. He had nothing and he had to take, you know, a much less prestigious job, you know, smaller place, didn't have any of his resources. I think the, the value of Bitcoin is that in situations like that, people can have their savings and they can cross borders and keep their savings without anyone knowing. And in, in the modern world, it it's actually applies in places like Venezuela, where people have escaped Venezuela and they've been able to keep their savings without the government even knowing that they have anything valuable. They just cross, they cross the border with just their just shirt on their back, but they've kept their savings. And that's a very, very powerful thing for people escaping oppression, is to be able to keep the fruits of their labor with them without anyone else knowing. So I, I do think that has a very positive impact on the world in, in places we don't have a great tradition of liberalism that, that uh, allows people to keep their property and their the fruits of their labor. Vijay, I think I have one final question, but I wanted to just know what are you paying attention to the most out of the development coming out of the Bitcoin space during this bear market? What is it that has you most excited? We've seen each bear market sort of give birth to new technology that the next bull market takes advantage of. Is there anything in particular that you're keeping a close eye on? I think probably the growth of Lightning is, you know, we know we've known about Lightning for a while, just to see it develop and to see its adoption grow. I think that's a big one. Also, I'm interested in Taproot and what benefit that, that that can provide in terms of privacy enhancements for Bitcoin, where you, you can have mul multiple keys own, uh, own a Bitcoin address, and then you don't know who's signed for it. I think that is a technology that can improve the privacy of Bitcoin in the future, but I think that's still a number of years away, people building products on top of the adoption of Taproot. So I'm interested in both of those. Probably Lightning is the bigger one because it's already so far advanced. I'm, re I'm really excited to see the ability for people to transact tiny amounts and, and to allow for that idea that I mentioned early on, the airdrop idea. If the airdrop idea was ever created by someone, it would be using the Lightning network. 
So I, I, I'm hopeful that we're going to see greater adoption of Lightning. And I, and I think that there'll be business opportunities and ideas for people building on top of Lightning that we haven't even thought of. Just like in the early days of the internet, there's so many things that people, like you go back to 2000, most people would never have thought that you'd have like, you know, Google Maps or Facebook or YouTube. None of these ideas would have like, people wouldn't have thought about those ideas, and but they were all developed. I think the same thing is going to be true for Lightning. There's going to be a bunch of financial services and businesses that we hadn't anticipated people build. And I'll give a fun idea that I never saw coming, but in the early days of Lightning, there was that, I, there was this website, which was kind of a billboard and you could draw pictures on it. It was like a community billboard and it cost one sat per pixel and you you know, in the beginning, it ended up being a bunch of dick pics, <laughs> as it always does in the beginning. I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry. Which is hilarious. But that's an idea that I never would have anticipated, which is really cool, right? That I think there are going to be things like that where, but there are also businesses as well yeah. that become possible when you can transmit micro amounts of value. What can you do with that? And I'm really excited to, to see how that develops in the, the next few years. Yeah, the stuff... On that note, the stuff that Impervious is doing is is really exciting to me and interesting. I, you know, they're about to launch their their browser, which is you know purports to be like a full replacement for the the Google suite of apps, which is extremely ambitious. But they've uh, they've had some really exciting hackathons, you know, negotiating VPN credentials over Lightning, and then you know that initial handshake, and then setting the channel up separately. So I agree, there's a lot of of you know third layer apps that I feels I mean, like they're just so about cool. to explode. I didn't even know about that. That is super cool. Yeah, yeah, you should check them out. They're doing some really awesome stuff. And then there's, yeah, there's another one that's really exciting to me is DLC-based, like, trading platforms that are, you know, like, there's, like, an Umbral app now, which is, you know, one of the more popular Node implementations for, called ItchySats, that lets you, you know, it's it's a fully decentralized trading system for Bitcoin. It's it's pretty cool, so. Hmm, nice. It's good stuff. What else? Where, where else should we go? I feel like we've covered a lot of ground. I'm... What's how long reason? I want to ask this just while we bring up lightning for a sec. How long do you think until lightning capacity surpasses Visa or MasterCard? Oh, that's a tough question. I, I, I do think that's a longer term thing. I think that's something that's going to be five to 10 years at least, because I think lightning will really take off when Bitcoin has become an established store of value. I think one of the, one of the big impediments of using lightning kind of as a, uh, a transactional layer in a medium of exchange is people still don't really want to get rid of their Bitcoin. They don't really want to spend it. I think I will feel much more comfortable spending Bitcoin when that opportunity cost has shrunk a lot and Bitcoin is at say 500,000 or a million dollars. And then it, it gets closer to plateauing and, and it's not going up say a hundred X every four years. Once, once that has stopped happening, I think people will really want to use it as a medium of exchange much more. I've just been told that the impervious browser is out. Someone in our company has it on their computer. So. Whoa. Check I'll out check it out. Yeah. 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 Still frozen? Mm, yeah, kind oh. of in and out. You're sort of like, you look like a robot. Yeah. Oh, Do the robot, robot dance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. VJ, <laughs> uh, I want to give you the opportunity because my internet is just saying that I have done. I'm going to turn the mic over to you for some final bullish thoughts. 
Inspire the I, Yeah, I think this is the best time to be interested in Bitcoin. I always say this. When you're in a bear market, if you're able to get interested, to learn more about Bitcoin, to start building, to start investing, you are going to see the most success. I've seen this over and over again over the last decade. Unfortunately, the people who get excited right at the top of a bull market, the ones who get burnt and then they, they lose hope and then they go away and then they come back again later on. So if you're around, if you're around right now, I think there's a it's a great time to invest more, to stack sats, to start a business. Go, go out and do that and, and to learn as much as you can. There's so much happening as like stuff that P and, and Q were saying about what's happening with Bitcoin. I didn't even know about. So I need to go and do my research and uh, figure out what's happening in the Bitcoin space and how I could get involved because I'd love to to work at a company that's that's doing something exciting in the Bitcoin space. Amazing. Well, thank you again so much for joining us. And again, if you have not read BJ's book, The Bullish Case for Bitcoin, check it out. It's one of my personal favorites. I also want to remind everybody that Bitcoin 2023 is just around the corner. If you've not already got yourself a ticket for Bitcoin 2023, use code Live to save 10% today of course the print mag is also available you can also save 10 percent on that and the current edition the censorship resistant issue is going to become a collector's item very soon because we are just about to launch the new orange party issue check it out and we will see you all same time same place tomorrow Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. Come celebrate Bitcoin winter in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from May 18th to the 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your tickets before prices go up. The censorship resistant issue of the Bitcoin Magazine print edition is available now. Grab your copy at your local Barnes & Noble store or head on over to the Bitcoin Magazine store and use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your order today.